pray for us as we, as we get going. Father in heaven, we are uh, thankful to you for the way that you are, have worked over the course of history. Uh, we certainly see it um, when we study the Old Testament. We're seeing it in our sermon series right now as we're looking at Esther and seeing how you have worked through history to preserve your people, to build your church. Um, and we just thank you for this time that we have today to uh, just catch another glimpse of what that story looks like. Lord, we ask that you would bless our time uh, considering these things and that we would glorify you as we learn about what you've done uh, over the course of our history. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, A couple things by way of announcement just before we get going. Uh, Remember, uh, marriage retreat is coming up at the end of June and there are signups at the back table uh, today for those of you who are uh, planning to attend that. Uh, well worth going to and, and very much recommend it. Uh, in terms of book recommendations today, the main one that I've got for you is uh, actually not written by a Puritan, nor is it written by anybody in the, in the time period, uh, but is uh, Signs of the Spirit by Sam Storms. Sam Storms is a modern guy. Um, but what this book is, is, this book is an interpretation, as he calls it, of uh, Jonathan Edwards' The Religious Affections. Um, the Religious Affections is, uh, ha- we'll say it has a bit of a notorious reputation for being hard to read, uh, and that's because Edwards is such a deep thinker and, such, and, uh, and, and basically a genius. But uh, Sam Storms has tried to make that book not only approachable, but it's kind of a guide to reading along with that book. So highly recommend this. Um, some of the content that I'll go through today uh, will come from this. Uh, This actually has two works by Jonathan Edwards in it. Uh, It has both uh, uh, the religious affections, but it also has uh, an interpretation, if you will, of Jonathan Edwards' A Personal Narrative, which is his own kind of testimony about how he came to Christ. Uh, And it's interesting to see the parallels between the two books, because one was written, one was about what happened early in his life, and the other one was written in response to The Great Awakening. And you can see the, the, the commonalities there. It's very interesting and very good. Highly recommend it. Um, obviously, if you want to tackle the, the, the full work by Jonathan Edwards, that's also very much worth your time and effort, um, even though it is a, it is a challenging read. Uh, first slide, please. Um, so last week, we considered a group of pastors and lay leaders who sought reform in the Church of England. They're the Puritans, right? We talked a lot about them, and we're, so we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. Uh, these leaders sought to reform the Church of England. Um, during a great per- period of persecution, though, because uh, re- if you remember in the history of England, um, you know, you're kind of going back and forth between Catholicism and Protestantism during this time. Protestant Reformation is still, is, has winded down now. We're kind of outside of the Protestant Reformation, getting into the results of that. Uh, but England is kind of going back and forth between uh, Protestantism and Catholicism and, uh, and different... Uh, uh, kings and leaders are implementing Protestantism differently. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about what religious uh, uh, freedom or religious uh, liberty looked like during this period of time. It's not quite what we understand. Uh, but during this time, there was a lot of persecution on the Puritans because of their particular ideas uh, and their desire to reform, continue to reform the church and make it look more like what you see in the Scriptures. Um, and as a result of that persecution, they fled continental Europe and England uh, 
Some, well, sorry, some of them went to continental Europe and some of them migrated to the New World uh, in the Americas, particularly in New England. The first settlers in North America were not just devout Puritans in Massachusetts, though. Uh, there were some, uh, dur- during those same decades, saw enterprising English-, English settlers found new colonies in Virginia, Maryland, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Georgia. Uh, Virginians, um, uh, you know, those, those religious folks established, uh, did not have the same vision for covenant communities like the, the New England Puritans did. So we're, we'll go over that a little bit today as well. And through the remainder of the 18th century, these groups would experience a series of religious revivals known as the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening spawned a more common American religious identity and would profoundly shape modern evangelicalism. Although one thing I will say, and we're going to see a map in a few minutes, um, what we consider really, what we actually often look at as the, you know, the, the religious roots of America or the religious um, you know, America. You know, America being a religious country or a, a Christian nation, uh, that actually traces more back to the Second Great Awakening, which we'll cover in a future session, than the first. Um, the Second Great Awakening kind of sits as a mountain where you, that you think is the horizon, but the horizon is really on the other side. Um, and and that that uh, revival and awakening actually is what produces kind of the common Christian. Uh, ethos that, that America, that we sometimes associate with America. It comes more from there than from here. At this point in time, at the end of the Great Awakenings, we're still rather divided in a number of different ways and don't really have a necessarily one common religious identity that comes out of it. But it still profoundly shapes what is, gonna, what is coming up in the American Revolution, which we're going to be covering the beginnings of today. Next slide. So as we discussed last week, the Puritans who emigrated from England to the Massachusetts colonies were solidly Calvinistic in theology um, and committed to the principles of the Reformation with a special emphasis on sola fide, right? The need to have a personal conversion to Christ through faith alone. That was something that the Puritans, particularly the English Puritans, very strongly held to. Unfortunately, in the American colonies, they built a bit of a shaky house on top of that solid foundation. By attempting to integrate religious and civil society completely um, in New England, only church members could be a part of society and vote. So this caused problems for subsequent generations who did not come to faith themselves after having been baptized as infants. Uh, Participation in civil society required that you be a baptized member of the church. And you can see how this would trouble adult members who had never come to faith themselves. What were they supposed to do with their kids? Uh, they, they were not allowed to be baptized, at least not at first, because infant baptism required the parents to be converted believers. Uh, yet without baptism, there was no membership in civil society. So there was this kind of tension. We covered that some last week as well. And the solution that they came up, to, came up with was the halfway covenant of 1662, which allowed the baptism of the children of members who were unconverted themselves, but otherwise in good standing with the church. It was, a ha- it was halfway because the children whose parents were not converted at the time of baptism would be, uh, sorry, the children whose parents were not converted at the time of their baptism would not be allowed to the Lord's table and into full membership. There were enough members to be on the roll so they could vote, but they weren't full members until they could give evidence of conversion. Uh, this was a dangerous compromise that resulted in a church that was unable to hold to the solas of the Reformation 
or to, the ortho, or to Orthodox doctrine, for that matter. And as a result, uh, over the next couple of generations that passed between the, the institution of the Halfway Covenant and the First Great Awakening, uh, the quality of religious life in New England deteriorated to the point where many churches were Christian in name only, filled with people with no real commitment to Christ, but faithful enough to maintain a place in society. Um, one thing to be clear on is that while the, while the Puritans came to the Americans to experience freedom to pursue religion uh, as they saw and worship as they saw fit, they didn't necessarily extend that privilege to others as well. They did not envision an individualistic, pluralistic society like we have today. Uh, if they had any idea of religious freedom, it looked something like this. We will practice our faith here with others who are just like us. And if you want something different, then you need to go somewhere else and establish your own colony and have your own set of rules. So they weren't necessarily against it entirely. They weren't trying to, to make all of the American colonies the same way. But each individual colony was definitely one particular way. And in this way, and in this sense, they were just products of the European culture that they had come from, right? For example, a country was either Protestant or Catholic. It was not really a mix of both. I mean, it was in, at the practical level, but officially it was not a mix of both. Um, as the Reformation evolved and denominations developed, especially in the American colonies, a colony was still one thing. So it was Puritan or Anglican or Baptist, but they were not uh, really mixtures of these things together. There was only one church on the green in the center of your town, and everybody in the, church, in the town was associated with that one church. <clears throat> uh, one side effect of this was to dampen the spirit of Reformation that had in the past spurred men to seek ways that the church needed to be reformed and conformed to Scripture. Uh, and it is into this apparently kind of dead landscape that God was about to do something great, however. Uh, but before we get to the First Great Awakening, let's take a look at the religious state of the colonies just before the awakening in the American Revolution. Uh, next slide. Uh, of course, in Massachusetts, we have the, uh, the Puritan uh, and Pilgrim colonies of Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth. We've discussed these quite a bit so far. Um, shortly after these colonies were established, a man named Roger Williams came from England uh, in order to pursue his own separatist or nonconformist ideals. While he was theologically very similar to the Puritans, he was a committed Calvinist, for example, uh, he differed that from them in two major respects. Uh, the first was, or he was, or became over time, a Baptist in his theology. He was associated with the Anabaptists for a while, and then kind of came out of that and became a little bit more traditional in his Baptist theology. Uh, so that was way number one. Remember, the, the, the English Puritans were, were infant Baptists, right? They were paedo-Baptists. So uh, when you have a, a, a Baptist or a credo-Baptist theology, that didn't fit. Uh, the second thing that was, that was different is that he didn't believe you could ever get sin or error out of religion. Uh, and as a result of that conviction, uh, he believed and, and sought uh, to have the church and civil authority be completely separate from each other. Of course, that was not the model that was being played out in the, in the particularly in the Massachusetts and New England colonies. Uh, and as a, so, as such, um, uh, he you know he kind of prophetically feared exactly the kind of situation that birthed the halfway covenant. Um, he saw that that was a problem. Uh, eventually, he was banished from Massachusetts 
Uh, again, the, the religious tolerance was only of a certain kind. He was banished from, from Massachusetts and established the colony of Rhode Island. Uh, and from here, Baptist communi- communities did spread throughout kind of New England. So there, was several, there were many Baptist communities around uh, that kind of spread out of, out of the colony of Rhode Island. Uh, Thomas Hooker was another Puritan thinker who desired that civil and religious government should not be connected. Uh, his issues focused more on the idea of voting and universal suffrage uh, or the right to vote. So in, in, in his view, uh, even though maybe his, he had still had a more integrated way of thinking than, uh, than Roger Williams did, he still wanted the ability for members and non-members to be able to vote in civil elections. Um, and uh, as a result, he helped to establish the colony of Connecticut. Now, the further we get away from England, the less Puritan the religion is and the more it's influenced by other movements that were present in Europe, uh, either on the mainland or in England. Um, Just a little further south in Pennsylvania, that was settled by the Quakers, uh, led by William Penn. Um, If you want to see an image of the founding of the Quakers, which I can't, his name escapes me at the moment in time, just pick up a box of Quaker oats. His face is there. Um, but the, the, the colony of Pennsylvania was established by William Penn. We don't have, the, the Quakers are a very different breed. We just don't have time to go into all of the ins and outs of how they were different uh, than kind of the Orthodox Christianity that surrounded them. Uh, but they were very different. Um, and that's Pennsylvania. And as you can see on the map above, the majority of the rest of the colonies were Anglican. Uh, there were some Catholic communities that were sprinkled in. Other denominations, as they were starting to develop now, are sprinkled in. But predominantly, the rest of the colonies are Anglican. Um, and uh, and it's, but it is definitely worth to note that uh, Catholicism is very definitely a small minority in the American colonies. It's there, but there's not ver- it's not a, a, a force to be reckoned with like it is in Europe during this time, and doesn't become that strong in the United States until uh, really after uh, the Civil War. Um, Up until the Civil War, the U.S. is really predominantly uh, uh, a a Protestant nation. Uh, Next slide. As we approach the First Great Awakening, I'm checking my, sorry, I'm checking my slides more than usual, because I I don't know that I've got them all in the right order. Uh, As we approach the First Great Awakening, which started in the 1730s, uh, we need to get introduced to a couple of men, Jonathan Edwards, and we're going to take a look at George Whitfield. Uh, these were the two great preachers that sparked the revival in the Americas, which in turn had significant influence in the shaping of the, the, the nation that the United States would become. Uh, as we, and we're going to kind of take a look at the Great Awakening through biographical sketches of these two guys. So we're going we're to review their kind of histories, what they were teaching, what they thought, what they were doing, and through that we're going to see um, the, 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 the first great awakening and kind of how it developed. Um, Jonathan Edwards was one of Yale's earliest and most brilliant students. Uh, he was also one of the greatest minds America has ever produced. Uh, in 1908, a professor did a study on his lineage. And at that time, uh, he found one U.S. vice president, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, and 100 missionaries. All coming from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Edwards certainly reigns as America's premier theologian and one of our most innovative philosophers. He was a stunningly advanced psychologist and natural scientist, 
And his life and thought well uh, illustrate much of the character of 18th century American Christianity, especially in the Northeast. And that's because he's the, he and the, and, the, and the influence that he had on the, on the First Great Awakening is what generated that, uh, that viewpoint. Uh, Edwards was born in East Windsor, Connecticut on October 5th, 1703 to the Reverend Timothy and Esther Stoddard Edwards. He was a contemplative young man who spent much of his time wandering the fields and thinking about God and creation. Uh, next slide. In 1716, he enters Yale College at 13 years old, graduates four years later at the top of his class. Uh, he later takes a master's degree from Yale as well. His Yale years were intellectually and spiritually fruitful. Uh, Christian theology and scripture, classic languages, enlightenment sciences and philosophies of Newton and Locke were uh, the, the kind of the bread and butter of his studies. He understood the challenges that enlightenment philosophy contained for historic Christian truth. Hey, Peter, can you go back to the, the timeline? I forgot to highlight this. So you can see from where we are in the timeline uh, we're in, we're, uh, where this class is there, if you look down, you'll see we're kind of in the second half of the Enlightenment. So that's one of the major, major uh, uh, strains of secular philosophy and secular thinking that was going on. The Enlightenment produces, in large part, the Enlightenment combined with Renaissance thinking is what produces a lot of the foundational ideas that are built into the, into the U.S. and our founding fathers. So... He's, he's understanding, he's living in the context of the Enlightenment. Okay, Peter, you can go back forward. Um, so he's living in the context of this Enlightenment uh, thinking, and he understands the challenges that the Enlightenment is bringing uh, to bear against uh, Christian thinking, and the, the, the challenges of the Enlightenment are significant. Um, so he endeavored to answer the challenges that the Enlightenment brings to Christian, to Christian faith, and he also seeks strongly to adapt the positive things that are coming out of the Enlightenment, things like nat- the idea of natural law. He talks a lot about natural law uh, and bringing those into and relating them to and associating them with uh, Christian orthodoxy. Uh, early in life, he struggled with doubts over God's grace and sovereignty. Uh, he was outwardly devout, uh, even taking great pleasure in religious duties and spiritual things. He was well known for walking and praying for five hours at a time. Um, however, he considers this as self, self-righteous interest at best. Um, it was not until 1721, at the age of 18, that God impressed on Edwards emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually the assurance that he could have salvation and how God himself had worked in Edwards while meditating, uh, had, had he, how, he, how he had worked in Edwards over time. He kind of came to this conclusion while meditating on 1 Timothy 1.17, which says, Now unto the king eternal, immortable, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory, forever and ever. Amen. This led Edwards to a profound and new comprehension. After reading the passage, he wrote this, There came into my soul, and was, as it were, diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I had ever experienced before. And in some ways, Edwards would spend the rest of his life meditating, reflecting, and expanding on the sweet sense of majesty and supremacy and glory of God that he, that he had when he, in this experience when he was 18. Uh, Edwards first became a pastor of a church at age 19 uh, in Manhattan, New York. It's here that he pens his famous set of 70 resolutions or guidelines 
by which he would live life and serve God. They're well worth reading, and he committed to rereading them once a week, every week for the rest of his life. Next slide. Uh, After a brief... uh, Yes, next slide after that. Yes, thank you. Uh, Edwards first became the pastor of a church... Oh, sorry. Uh, After a brief pastorate there in New York, uh, and one in Bolton, Connecticut, in 1726, he was invited to become the associate pastor to Solomon Stoddard, the aging pastor and grandfather of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, This was at a church in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, Stoddard was the unquestioned authority and most revered pastor in the Connecticut River Valley at the time. So this is a very important post and one that would not have been lightly bestowed. In 1727, he marries his wife, Sarah, at age 17, uh, who he had admired since she was 13 for her love of God. She was the great-great-great-granddaughter of Thomas Hooker, the famous Puritan founder of Connecticut, and together they had 11 kids. Uh, West of Boston, the church at Northampton was the most prestigious church in the Northeast. Edwards served three years there until Stoddard died in 1729, and he assumed the sole pastorate. Edwards immersed himself in his pastoral duties. His days often started at 4 or 5 a.m., And he worked for about 13 hours in study, reading, writing numerous letters and essays, and above all, preparing sermons. For he regarded the preaching of the word his most important duty to his congregation. One significant thing to note, in his ministry, Edwards rejects the halfway covenant and reestablished the practice of only allowing convinced believers to be baptized and into church membership. Uh, As a result of his writings and his faithful preaching, his message and fame spread uh, uh, throughout the, 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 the valley. In 1731, uh, things really start picking up. And in 1734, there's a full-on fiery hunger in New England, especially that Connecticut River Valley, uh, for the things of God. Edwards himself comments on this. This is from his... He, he wrote a, he wrote a, a book uh, later on called A Faithful Narrative. Um, uh, in fact, actually, go to the next slide. Yeah, a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God and the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton and surrounding areas. Um, Edwards writes this, A great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world became, the uni- became universal in all parts of the town. And among persons of all degrees and all ages, the noise amongst the dry bones waxed louder and louder. All other talk about spiritual and eternal things... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, was thrown by, all the conversation in all companies and upon all occasions was upon these things only, unless so much was necessary for people carrying on their ordinary secular business. Other discourse than of the things of religion would scarcely be tolerated in any company. The minds of people were wonderfully taken off from the world. It was treated amongst us as a thing of very little consequence." Edwards preached and published one of his most important sermons during this time, entitled divine and, A Divine and Supernatural Light, uh, where his primary concern is to distill the essence of the true Christian experience and is to distinguish it from either mere knowledge or mere emotionalism. Uh, here, Edwards explained that God communicates to people in an immediate way, beyond the reach of reason alone. The truly converted are given an entirely new sense. And think back to when that quote that I read from when he was converted, that new sense that he felt. You're going to start to see that coming out. Um, 
that uh, uh, the truly converted are given an entirely new sense to apprehend the things of God, a power to appreciate the beauty and excellency of Christ. This sense was not available to the unregenerate. In Edwards' famous illustration, it is the difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. Likewise, the spiritually enlightened person does not merely rationally believe that God is glorious, but he has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. Under the faithful preaching of the word, this new sense seemed to overtake many of the residents of Northampton and the surrounding towns up and down the Connecticut River Valley, and many either came to faith for the first time, stagnant faith renewed. Uh, Edwards believed in the ultimate supremacy of Christ, but also knew that Satan worked hard to stop the gospel work. Uh, In June 1735, Joseph Hawley, Edwards' uncle and and a prominent town member, became so distressed by his own sin and driven to despair with doubts of his salvation that he cut his own throat and died. This had a stifling effect on the community. News of this extraordinarily affected the minds of the people here, Edwards wrote. It also stunned and troubled the young pastor who struggled to comprehend what he described as this awful providence. While Hawley's suicide effectively ended the revival, Edwards kept on faithfully performing his pastoral labors. Yet this this tragic death always served as a reminder and a warning of the danger of godly revivals veering into ungodly excess and hysteria. Next slide. The revivals at Northampton in in the Connecticut River Valley anticipated revivals all over the English-speaking world. So it wasn't only here that God was was doing work. So what characterized all these individual revivals that together we call the Great Awakening? Uh, The first thing was itinerant preachers. Uh, Edwards was a guy who stayed in his town and preached in his town. But what was actually very common during this time is men who rode around giving sermons in different places. Uh, One prominent source for these preachers was actually William Tennant's Log College, which was started in 1726. And Wes Pastor, locally here at Christ Memorial Church, uh, has frequently said that Tennant and his Log College was an inspiration for him when he was starting Nets. Uh, The second thing that that kind of characterized the, the, the environment and what was going on during the Great Awakening is you had simple messages based on the on the basic gospel. So they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't long and complicated dissertations. You had simple messages that were being given by itinerant preachers. Uh, there, there were often appeals to human emotion as well as reason. Um, this produced a lot of wild shouting, convulsions, fainting, speaking in tongues. So there was lots of crazy that was going on during the, during the Great Awakening as well. But an example from Edward's side, which was, possi- which was more uh, reserved, if you will, an example from, of this kind of sermon from him is sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, that is often associated with an angry tone and, you know, fire and brimstone kinds of preaching. That's not the kind of preacher that Edwards was. Um, it, this was a calmly delivered, logically oriented and logically reasoned, closely reasoned argument showing people that eternal judgment awaits those outside of Christ. And, and Edwards was, he was a guy, he, you know, he was this, he was kind of, by all reports, he was kind of this kind of guy. He read his sermons to you and wasn't the most, apparently wasn't the most dynamic of speakers, and yet he had these kinds of results. But, you know, so his appeal was to reason there. 
but you also had these other appeals uh, to emotion and emotionalism that was coming as uh, was fairly common during the Great Awakening. Um, and then the other thing that you just saw was an explosion in church membership across churches. Uh, in 1733 and 34, so this is during that arrival that was specifically in Northampton, uh, there were 300 m- new members added to Edwards Church. 300 members in the, in the space of about a year to a year and a half. Uh, next slide. Uh, by 1740, a new preacher eclipses all the other preachers, including Edwards, uh, in international pro- uh, prominence. George Whitfield, uh, the young Anglican evangelist, had been stirring vast multitudes of, uh, in his native England uh, to repent of their sins and trust Christ for salvation. So he kind of got, the, got these revivals going in England itself. Uh, his mother owned a bar, um, and led, and that led to a very lonely, rough existence for his early years. He was educated at Oxford. Uh, was a good friend of the Wesley brothers. Uh, and it is there that he's converted, crying out while praying on his bed, I thirst, I thirst. So he was seeking after that which only God could give. Uh, Whitfield had an exceptional voice a stunningly effective gift for dramatic presentation and a tireless passion for proclaiming the gospel to lost sinners. Uh, His first love was the theater, and this helped him greatly in in his presentations. Whitfield, one contemporary said, could make men weep or trembled by his various utterances of the word, get ready for it, Mesopotamia. While in England, he attacked the establishment of Anglican ministers for being unconverted. Uh, he preached to vast multitudes, but not in churches. Uh, it, he, instead, he preached in fields, public squares, open markets all over England. Uh, he preached from a portable folding stand that he would set up wherever he needed it. Literally thousands of people at the time would flock to Whitfield's sermons. On some occasions, as many as twenty or 30,000 people once gathered to hear him. He had a remarkable voice that carried well, even outside in an era before amplification. While some came for curiosity, and most came out of spiritual hunger, at least a few came to cause trouble. One time when he was preaching to a great multitude at a park in England, hecklers bombarded Whitfield with stones, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cat. Undaunted, he finished his sermon and saw many come to faith. Another time he had his head bashed in by a rock that left him blind in one eye for a few days. Uh, Then he came to to the New World. In 1738, uh, uh, he founded the Bethesda Orphanage in Georgia. That's the state Georgia, uh, which is still the oldest extant charity in in North America. Still exists today, the Bethesda Orphanage. Uh, In 1739, uh, he returned to preach in Pennsylvania and the southern colonies. He returned to the U.S., um, or to the American colonies, rather. Uh, He became America's first celebrity, and many traveled for miles and miles to hear him. Newspapers reported his comings and goings and carried regular journal entries. Uh, Whitfield made astute use of this publicity, desperate as he was to see as many people as possible hear the gospel. Uh, Next slide. Uh, uh, Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin were actually good friends. They kept up a correspondence for decades, and Whitfield often uh, begs Franklin to taste of the new birth in Christ uh, but Franklin thinks he's already genuinely converted, so doesn't think he needs to do anything. Uh, uh, Franklin notes, uh, change soon, 
this is what Franklin notes about Whitfield, okay? He is wonderful. Change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants from being thoughtless or indifferent about religion. It seemed as if from all the world were growing, seemed like those from all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families from every street. That's Franklin's assessment or Franklin's recollection of what happened after George Whitfield came through town. Uh, Jonathan Edwards also, can you go to the next slide, Peter? Oh yeah, Jonathan Edwards uh, had read of the excitement surrounding the young Whitfield. In 1740, he wrote to Whitfield and invited him to preach at Northampton during a tour of of New England. Uh, Whitfield had read Edwards' A Work of Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. That was published in 1737 and agreed to come. Uh, In October 17 through 19 of 1740, Whitfield arrives in Northampton and stays with the Edwards family. Uh, Sarah Edwards, he notes, was a singular woman in her own right, a model of learning, piety, and devotion to family. She She reared 11 children and served as a treasured companion to her husband throughout his ministry. Uh, Whitfield was unmarried at the time and was, and was struck. And he said, A sweeter couple I have not seen. Mrs. Edwards is adorned with a meek and quiet spirit. She talks solidly of the things of God and seemed to be such a helpmeet for her husband that she caused me to renew these prayers which for some months I have put up to God that he would be pleased to send me a daughter of Abraham to be my wife. Whitfield's tour through New England in 1740 and 1741 marked the height of the Great Awakening revivals. So you had that 1734 revival in Northampton that kind of died down with the, with the suicide of Edward's uncle. And now you've got Whitfield coming back through and re-sparking everything that was happening in the, in the, in the New England colonies in 1740 and 1741. And that's generally considered to be that apex of all the activity there. Thousands ga- uh, gather to hear his sermons. Great numbers respond with deep emotion. Convicted of sin, they would wail and cry out to God for salvation. Many turned to Christ, and church membership swelled in towns swept by the revival. Um, Some differences between Edwards and Whitfield. Edwards only occasionally preached outside of his church. Uh, Whitfield spent his whole life in itinerancy. He traveled everywhere, usually preaching in public spaces rather than in church buildings. Edwards, on the one hand, was a pastor whose sermons and writings covered an array of subjects. Whitfield, on the other hand, stuck to the basic gospel message because he was always dealing with a new audience. Uh, Whitfield dies... uh, uh, Sorry. Uh, Sometimes Whitfield took to the pulpit four or five times times a day. And by the end of his life, we see a man who vomited, according to one source, a vast discharge from the stomach, usually with a considerably quantity... Quality, quantity of blood. He had, he had severe gout, and that's what he ultimately died of. Um, okay, Edwards post-awakening. Can you go to the next slide, Peter? I think I've got one for this. Yeah. Um, Edwards post-awakening. So after Whitfield dies, you, Edwards is continuing in his, uh, in his pulpit, so we're going to go back and take a look at him. Um, uh, Whitfield, if Whitfield was the heart of the Great Awakening, Edwards was the mind. Uh, in many pa- places throughout New England, the revivals burned out of control. Screaming, laughing, trances, visions, and convulsions were fairly common. Some ministers deliber- deliberately manipulated their audiences to, to invoke this kind of a response. Um, some of the ministers of the more established churches in Boston began sounding off against these excesses and against the revivals in general. Uh, and against these attacks, Edwards proved to be the revival's greatest theological defender. He was also their most penetrating critic. 
In 1741, he delivered a commencement address at Yale entitled The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God. The sermon was later expanded into his treatise on the religious affections. And that's the book, and Signs of the Spirit is the book that I recommended today that you guys, that you, it would, you would do well worth your time to read that to get a sense for the religious affections. He does, he's an excellent thinker and helps us think critically about what it means to be a Christian and what things point to that and what things don't. In that treatise, Edwards discusses 12 things that one cannot hold to be evidence of a work of the Spirit, such as supernatural manifestations, excessive talking about religion, even the impression of the Scriptures upon the mind. In the second half of the book, he gives 12 signs that can, in fact, be taken as evidence of the work of God, uh, a love for God, honor for Christ, and above all, a religious life. The interesting thing to note, though, about Edwards in his spiritual affections, especially in that first section where he's talking about what doesn't show uh, a person to be a spiritual, a real, actual spiritual Christian, um, he is very careful to say that if you are a real, true spiritual Christian, these things will be present in your life. You just can't rely upon them solely to be able to tell that. So he's he's very careful to, to show that these are good things that we want and we want to pursue. You just can't always rely upon them as, as faithful indicators of somebody's coming to Christ. All right, trouble in Northampton. A theological dispute in Edwards Church finalized what had been a growing rift between Edwards and the Northampton congregation. Uh, the previous pastor, Stoddard, had taught that communion was a converting ordinance. The bread and wine themselves could communicate the truth of the gospel and should be given to the unconverted. Edwards believed that, that communion should be reserved for those who made a credible profession of faith in Christ only. Uh, and this, this, started, this created that rift in the church. Uh, when, and when he tried to change this, many in the congregation rebelled. And after lengthy disputations in June 22nd of 1750, the congregation voted overwhelmingly to dismiss him as their pastor. Um, after this, he becomes a pastor to a mission church in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. This is west of Northampton. Uh, he preached, and he preached to them. Uh, it's a mission church to native to the Native American tribes that were out there. Remember, that would have been the western frontier at this time. Um, so he preached to them via an interpreter. Uh, he wrote treatises on original sin and freedom of the will, the end for which God created the world and the nature of true virtue, and continued to work on his magisterial yet never finished a history of the work of redemption. So he did all of that in this time when he was out uh, uh, ministering uh, to Native Americans. That was about from 1751 to 1757. Uh, In February 16 of 1758, Edwards was installed as the third president of the College of New New Jersey, also known as Princeton. Uh, It's somewhat impossible imagining an evangelical becoming Uh, president of Princeton today. Um, Always interested in scientific inquiry, Edwards allowed himself to be inoculated with the new smallpox vaccine on February 23rd, 1758. The experiment failed. Edwards dies on March 22nd of 1758. Uh, We conclude with Edwards' greatest concern and most persistent theme. In a letter to, to to Deborah Hathaway, a teenage girl who had been converted during the revivals, Edwards encouraged her in this way. Though we are exceeding sinful, yet we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the preciousness of of whose blood and the merit of whose righteousness and the greatness of whose love and faithfulness does infinitely overtop the highest mountains of our sin.
Amen, indeed. Questions from you guys uh, about, uh, about Puritanism in the, United, in, the, in the American colonies, Edwards, the Great Awakening, uh, Whitfield. We've got, we got a few minutes for questions. Let me pick up. Get it later. Yeah. Did any of this like make its way up to Vermont? Because I noticed like mm-hmm. it wasn't really there. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know the answer specifically. Um, Vermont is of, is the is the 14th state, so we're, there's obviously it's colonized and developing uh, throughout the throughout the American Revolution. It's a there are several important. Uh, you know, battles in the American Revolution that take place up here. Ethan Allen and the, and the, uh, and the uh, Green Mountain Boys are obviously active during that time. Vermont is not known as a religious place, uh, historically speaking. Uh, that doesn't mean there wasn't religion here, um, but it's not known as a religious place like uh, Western Massachusetts was during this time. Uh, but I don't, I don't know how to speak in detail to where the Reformation, where the revivals made it. The the revivals were, however, broadly, uh, especially in New England, they didn't extend so far into the South. That's the second Great Awakening that was more in the South. Um, But, uh, uh, you know, they were still a broad movement and certainly would have had churches that would have been affected by it, I would imagine. Steve? Just trying to get timelines right. Yep. So the... Second Great Awakening overlaps the Revolution, like it, it encompasses and overlaps no. it, or not. Second Great Awakening. Second Great Awakening is just prior to the Civil War. So, where, where's the Revolution in all this? Uh, we're 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 about to get to it. So okay. So uh, so yeah. Um, Edwards is ministering uh, 1751, 1757 in the in the colonies. He dies 1758. Uh, you know, Declaration of Independence, 1776. So we're within 20 years of that. Um, you know, Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin are good friends uh, in adult life. So obviously you have the, the, you know, indications of the beginnings of the American Revolution there. Um, so the, the, tail, the, 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 the tail end, the very last kind of gasps, if you will, of the, of the First Great Awakening are the 1780s. So that's still very early in the American Revolution. Um, and the other thing that's true that, you know, that I didn't, have a, I didn't have time to go into enough, but I can comment on it briefly, is that, that one of the things you do have growing up into America at this point in time is a sense of uh, uh, secularism. Um, you know, our founding fathers were not, by and large, Christian men. They were, most of them were deists at best. Now, that's the top echelon. That's, you know, uh, you know George Washington, Ben Franklin... Um, you know, uh, Jefferson. These guys were deists at best and were very committed to, uh, you know, the, the Enlightenment thinking of the time. Now, as you get down into the second and third tiers of your leadership, you get more uh, that are faithful, you know, Bible-believing Christians. Um, so that's the other, the other thread that's coming up during this time. And what's driving a lot of the, ref, of the a lot of the revolution is more of those enlightenment ideas, and not so much the awakening. That's that's not what's driving the revolution. That's more the enlightenment and enlightenment thinking that's driving the revolution over here. That's not to say that those who are experiencing these reformations or this uh, awakening were opposed to it. There, you know, there was all the all the political tensions that that we all know about from our American history classes, but. Um, say that the, the 
circumstances surrounding the revolution sort of brought an end to this period of, of the Great Awakening, since they happen sort of during, they, they overlap, and when the revolution yeah. is over, it seems to be that the Awakening is over as well. Do they have a negative uh, effect on it? I, I don't know. I'll, my, my first answer is I don't know. Um, my second answer is that I think what you see in the 1780s especially is our last gasps of what's going on, and that's so much at the beginning of the revolution. I would tend to think that the, the, this Awakening was winding down and that was winding up. I don't know. That, I don't feel like one end or the other. But I didn't do any research on that. Uh, but I don't. It doesn't feel that way to me as I look at the data. Yeah. Good question. Other thoughts? Yeah. Chris. Eric. <clears throat> um, not to get ahead, and I know you sort of may have already addressed this just this moment, but um, I'd heard somewhere that some of the thought. Um, the philosophical bent of the American Revolution was also influenced by the First Great Awakening. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's, and, and Puritanism as a, as a whole. I mean, uh, you see the, the Puritan ideas that, that I, I, as I talked about last time, you see some Puritan ideas coming out. Now, they're not, they're not there because you have Puritans trying to put them into the Declaration of Independence, right? But the idea that all men are created by God, that's a very Puritan idea and, and something that they held on to very dearly. So there's echoes of it at least going on, sure. Yeah. And, and, the, and the First Great Awakening and Edwards had profound impact on American, on especially New England and American culture at the time. Well, that's about all we have time for. If you have other questions, you can certainly come talk to me. Uh, let me pray for us. And, don't, and by, again, once again, don't forget to sign up for the, the, the marriage retreat if you're interested in going to that. Father in heaven, we do thank you once again for what you are doing throughout the history of the world. Lord, we are uh, thankful that we have been selected to be a member of the people of God here in this place. Uh, And we know that uh, we are only here and your church is only here because you have preserved your people throughout history. So thank you. We praise you as well for our upcoming worship service. We ask that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth and that you would give Skylar Uh, Much grace as he brings the word to us today. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.